Welcome back to the Arena Lab podcast, a show that explores the science and the people behind the Research and Innovation Network Austria, also known as Arena. This week, we had the opportunity to speak to Dr. E. William Koglazier, a fellow Texan. He's originally from San Antonio and has spent a lot of time in D.C. bringing together science and policy. In 2011, he was appointed the fourth science and technology advisor to the U.S. Secretary of State. He has done work on the United Nations Development Goals, on an advisory committee around science and technology. He has worked on some of the most important issues of our time, and he has an expansive career. I'll let him tell you more. Here's our interview with Dr. Koglazier. So welcome to our show. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. We were just chatting about all the specialties that you've had through your career. Well, you want to give the audience a highlight of what you've done and what your specialty is? Sure. I, I started out life as a theoretical physicist, and that's all I wanted to do when I was growing up. And uh, But I was influenced by a number of uh, mentors, distinguished scientists, about the importance of science related to uh, uh, policy and society, particularly uh, uh, in the 1970s, uh, issue related to how do we control nuclear weapons, uh, how do we manage uh, environmental challenges, uh, how do we deal with the energy crisis. And so, uh, although after being a research scientist for several years, I took a fellowship program uh, to actually work for the U.S. Congress for a year, sort of this interface of, of science and public policy and politics, and uh, uh, slowly then switched my career and sort of moved over full-time in, into that, uh, university professor at first, and then uh, going to the National Academy of Sciences, where my job was to oversee all of the studies that they do on public policy issues related to science and technology, then as the science and technology advisor to the Secretary of State for three years, then as uh, two years as co-chair of a committee at the United Nations on the role of science and technology and innovation for achieving sustainable development goals. And then, then now in my post-career, being editor of a little online journal called Science and Diplomacy. Very nice. The, the intersection of science and diplomacy, I hadn't really even given much thought until we started chatting about how important that is. And I imagine that your reason to, to, to make the shift in your career um, was to have impact. Is that what was that in your heart? I, I think so. That I think uh, a lot of scientists of uh, my generation wanted to, uh, at least were thinking about how could they use their expertise to make the world a better place, to, uh, to help people not only in their own country, but also uh, uh, around the world. Uh, so the issues connected, first of all, for me, it was with uh, arms control on uh, nuclear weapons, but then it quickly evolved into the broad suite of issues, including how to help countries in the developing world to, uh, to grow faster, mm -hmm. uh, how to use science technology as a tool, particularly between countries that may be estranged where the governments don't get along. So I've been involved with uh, a number of countries where science was a very useful tool for keeping dialogue open between, uh, between countries. A uh, number of my mentors were heavily involved in discussions with uh, Soviet scientists in the period, which turned out when there were windows of opportunity diplomatically, they had a big impact on policies between the U.S. and uh, the Soviet Union then at, at, at that time. So I became very much engaged with this whole issue of how science technology can be a very useful tool for influencing, moving diplomats, policymakers, and what we thought was the right direction to deal with some of these big challenges around the world and, uh, and, and domestically. So, so most of my career has been at that interface of science and either public policy or international affairs and diplomacy. That's really interesting. Um, I would imagine that 
there's a lot of challenges in, in dealing with diplomats of the various countries serving at the UN and the state, uh, Department of State, just because the decisions and the science that you bring to the table is not always received well. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And it takes scientists. Uh, the, the, this program of bringing young scientists to get experience working in government, the one I had with the U.S. Congress back in the 1970s, but now it's a very large program and including a number of uh, young as well as mid-career science, even professors that go in the State Department, and they really learn what it's like to, uh, what diplomats have to have to deal with. And of course, uh, diplomats in other countries, in every country they come, you know, with what their government has told them, you know, to press for their own uh, national interests. But, but on the positive side, what I found with engaging with many countries in science and technology right now, particularly coming from the U.S., <clears throat> where even the countries don't like our politics, they admire our science and technology, our universities, our big uh, high-tech companies. Uh, so every country I dealt with, the first topic they always wanted to talk about was uh, how could they upgrade the, their own society's capabilities to be able to be competitive, to be successful, to be innovative, to ensure prosperity and security of their country. And they were looking at the model of the U.S. So that actually I found engaging on science technology with other countries is a very useful tool for influencing their behavior, their actions, even how they spend their own money sometimes because uh, uh, they were looking at, uh, they wanted to engage with the U.S. even if they didn't agree with uh, uh, with our government policies. But yes, you're absolutely right that uh, uh, countries are trying to do things for their own uh, national interests. That's what diplomacy is all about, trying to convince the, uh, the other guy that, uh, uh, to do what you want them to do. Uh, and so that's always going to be uppermost. But I think most dip diplomats in the world now have recognized that science and technology are very powerful, that uh, almost every issue they deal with, there's some aspect where scientific information, technological information is highly relevant. Uh, they have to increase the capability of their own foreign ministry, for example, to deal with these issues. Uh, they have to see what other countries are doing. So it's uh, they're all quite willing now to engage and to talk about issues with it really in some cases come from science technology. The, the other thing that they're very much concerned with right now is that uh, they see that these new technologies, whether it's artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, uh, gene editing, can actually create opportunities for societies, but they can also create great disruption. And so they're worried about how do they deal with these rapidly changing technologies, which may uh, uh, affect their society. That's such interesting. Um to think that science is this language across the world that unites people, unites different countries with a, a, a vision uh, of improvement and opens doors of communication and dialogue, even when there's disagreements in politics and whatnot. We talked everything from nuclear arms to social media, um, and we were discussing where, you know, nuclear arms, that was, a, there's a, a lot of science to try to make sure that that was never used again. You talk a little bit about, you know, what that looked like. Sure. In the uh, uh, the, the 1980s, some of the uh, the senior scientists that, that I worked with were heavily involved in uh, dialogues with uh, Soviet scientists on, uh, on essentially on nuclear weapons. How do we be sure that for one, there's not an accident where something is misinterpreted with another party? I mean, we got very close to that with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, how do we uh, prevent those sort of things? How do we uh, try to reduce the uh, 
the threat that other countries perceive from our weapons and, and, and vice versa, as well as uh, controlling uh, incidents. So the dialogue that uh, the U.S. and Soviet scientists, they were what we call track two outside of government uh, dialogues. But when uh, Gorbachev assumed power in the Soviet Union, it turned out that his key science advisors were the same Soviet scientists the Americans were uh, working with. So they had uh, all the things that were in the track two dialogues, the discussions, the issues, the possible solutions, had a big influence then on the policy side when there was this window of opportunity in terms of uh, uh, changes occurring in the leadership of the, of the, of the two countries. Uh, I was also involved in the, the renormalization relations uh, after the renormalization relations between the U.S. and, and China. Uh, actually, it's going to be uh, the agreement, uh, the scientific agreement between the two countries was 1979, so we have the 40th anniversary next year. Uh, we had, I was at the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. We had a, uh, an office in Beijing to help facilitate uh, science and engagement between the U.S. and uh, uh, in, in Chinese scientists. So it had a, then we trained a lot of the, uh, the Chinese scientists now who are leading the effort uh, in China. I was heavily involved uh, with, uh, from 2000 until relatively recently between the U.S. and Iran, where both countries even... Relations were so bad, but they encouraged their scientific communities in both countries to uh, uh, to engage. And so we had three or four workshops a year, not dealing with nuclear issues in those days, but dealing with public health issues, dealing with environmental issues, uh, protection from earthquakes. Uh, with the U.S. and uh, Cuba, when I was in the, the, the State Department, my deputy, who was this very talented uh, American from Puerto Rico background, spoke fluent Spanish. We were next to the Cuba desk inside the State Department. Uh, so she was heavily involved in uh, what became then the, uh, in the Obama administration, the renormalization, the arrangements with Cuba. There are a lot of scientific exchanges that were occurring before that. Uh, where I am at the AAAS right now, there even have been uh, some science engagement with North Korea dealing with uh, uh, a volcano that's in the North Korean border with, uh, with China, outfitting it with uh, seismometers. So, so even when countries may be terribly estranged, uh, even the diplomats have recognized that it can be very useful to have the scientific community at least talking with each other, uh, that that window of, of engagement can actually perhaps uh, help lead to, uh, to larger breakthroughs on, on the diplomatic side. What's unfortunate, I mean, for me right now, clearly politics is a more powerful force than science, at least in the, uh, in the short run. So in the case with the U.S. Uh, and Iran, I'm a, a big supporter of the Iran nuclear agreement. Uh, and uh, now with the U.S. government uh, backing out of it, it's almost ended uh, this back-channel scientific communication between the U.S. Uh, and Iran, uh, and I think that was a, a really a, a serious mistake. So these things that can be reversals, same thing with the current U.S. administration with the, uh, uh, the Paris uh, Climate Accords, mm -hmm. the U.S. also backing out of that, I think the... Uh, so I, I think these things will, will essentially go back, at least I hope that's the case, but it shows you that, uh, that politics can have a big impact, even with uh, uh, the best efforts of the scientific community to help advance things. It doesn't necessarily guarantee that's uh, the outcome, although more recently being involved heavily with the role of science and technology innovation for the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, it may not be on the radar screen of the U.S. government, but many countries around the world are heavily involved uh, in trying to figure out how they can use science and technology really to accomplish 
their national, all their national goals can be described in some sense within this broad sweep of the sustainable development goals. And uh, so trying to help countries around the world uh, to use their own scientific community, their technological community, engage with the advanced countries around the world. Uh, if all countries, in my view, if they utilize more scientific input into their policymaking, hopefully it'll lead to more rational decisions that can guarantee it. But that's the... That's yeah, the we hope. were talking about how there's got to be frustrations uh, between the science and, and when diplomats and, and policymakers make decisions because it's not always based on science. It's They've got so many other things, factors they've got to consider. So I can see where that can get frustrating at times, for sure. But at the same time, it's there's a lot of positive uh, in having that connection across the world with various countries. Um, let's talk about social media, because I thought that was really interesting when we were chatting a little earlier about, you know, the impacts of social media and what that's done for uh, the community and the world. Yeah, yeah. When I was in the uh, the State Department, I, I was involved with the U.S. intelligence agencies. Uh, in part, I was quite, actually quite impressed with their efforts to try to anticipate what were some of the uh, implications of sort of rapidly developing uh, technology and social media was uh, was one of them, trying to see how it would affect uh, foreign relations, government policy, societies uh, around uh, the world. Uh, the uh, I guess my conclusion, though, now looking back what's happened more recently, particularly with the use of uh, fake news and uh, pretend accounts uh, on Facebook and elsewhere to try to influence uh, the, the U.S. election, we we really didn't do a very good job anticipating how social media could be used for what you might say in various and, uh, uh, purposes. Uh, so a little bit caught flat-footed in trying to uh, uh, to see what, what was coming. So it shows you that uh, even the best intelligence agents, the best diplomats, the best scientists are not always can see yeah. exactly how things are going to unwind, particularly when you have these new developments. Uh, Seems right. like a double-edged sword is what we were talking about earlier because you have that, but then you also have the connectivity of the world. And so when politicians in various countries don't listen to science or whatnot, um, the world knows. And and so that can cause pressure for more communication. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. In fact, I think uh, – and I was one of those who felt that uh, – you know, the combination of the, the Internet and social media and giving a voice to people around the world that was going to put pressure, particularly on our authoritarian governments, uh, but did not anticipate the extent to which our authoritarian governments could actually use that same technology uh, for control. I mean, you see that right now in places like China where they're using facial recognition, you know, to uh, uh, keep track of people. But I think what it's I think the scientific community has a real responsibility to help policymakers, particularly in the democratic countries, understand how they can maximize the opportunities from these new technologies, but also to think very carefully about what are the challenges that we have to find ways to deal with, to defend against, uh, if necessary. So I, I think that's a major challenge, not only for the science community, but for the diplomatic and political community. I, I was... Uh, in fact, we're, this is talking a little bit about uh, about Austria. I've been involved with, I think, a, a very good organization in Austria called the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis, uh, EASA, which is in Vienna. It was actually created in the 1970s as a way for uh, for U.S. and Soviet scientists, the West and the East, not only U.S. but also European, to engage and work on uh, on major issues together. Uh, right now, it's evolved into it's got. Many other countries that belong to it, its focus is really on on uh, 
on systems analysis is a tool looking at all kinds of issues, environmental, economic, uh, social, uh, demography, and so on, and a lot of very good people, and they bring uh, young scholars there. In, anyway, the EASA has led an effort to include a lot of international scientists. They just came out this past summer with, I think, a very good report called The World in 2050. So it's sort of looking at what are the, the big issues the world has to deal with, uh, particularly related to having a more sustainable world on, on all the uh, social, economic, environmental aspects. But what are the major transformations that have to occur to enable us to sort of chart the course that where we're going to be successful? And they laid out uh, six, but one of them is they uh, they labeled as the, the digital technologies. And they, they put a, uh, again, look, I think it was broader than just digital, all of the revolutions occurring in the biological sciences and elsewhere. But they, but they called it uh, the digital Anthropocene. Uh, Anthropocene is a word that's come up. You know, we have these different geologic epochs uh, of the world, and now the Anthropocene is supposed to be the epoch where everything is dominated by human beings, that they really control the whole, uh, uh, the whole planet. And uh, in this uh, report, the Diasa led uh, coined the term the digital Anthropocene, that if you think the Anthropocene is really significant, wait till you combine it with all of these new capabilities that are yeah. coming from uh, uh, digital technologies. So, yeah. But, Leads me back to what you said earlier about this facial recognition in China. What are your thoughts on that? Do you have any? Well, I mean, obviously, China is exploiting artificial intelligence uh, and these technologies as a way to control uh, society. So I think democratic countries of the world have to, uh, that, that's a major issue that we have to think about and, and, and to deal with. I was just involved in meetings in, uh, uh, in Japan, and what I was advocating there was that... Uh, call them the advanced maritime democracies in the Indo-Pacific region. So that includes Japan, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, India. You know, Japan, uh, China has made these plans where they want to dominate the high-tech industries of the future. Uh, they have a lot of smart people. They're putting massive investments in science and technology. I was uh, uh, advocating that uh, the maritime democracies, the countries that I'm particular that I mentioned, we have to uh, to move faster in terms of science, technology, innovation, and to show the Chinese that uh, the more open, bottom-up type innovative ecosystems in our countries can move faster than the authoritarian, top-down uh, 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 approach. You know, I have I have a number of uh, friends who are very good scientists in China. Many of them educated in the United States after. The, uh, the opening, and uh, right now they can't speak freely uh, in China. But when they can, when they think no one can listen to them when they're outside of China, they're really worried that they really viewed the U.S. as the main bulwark that was helping move China towards what some kind of called liberal uh, rules-based international order. And then they've seen with you know the recent political developments in the U.S. and occurring in Europe. So that uh, plus the fact that uh, that China recently has turned more authoritarian. Uh, and more controlling that uh, uh, they're they're very uh, distressed by that, but yeah. they don't know what they can do about it. And uh, the fact that the government is going to use all of these technologies essentially the way to control society is, uh, I think, is a significant challenge. Uh, yeah, re really, really interesting. So, for our listeners out there that are, you know, thinking about careers and and potentially really interested in science and also politics. Uh, what's what's your recommendation as far as how to follow a path similar to yours? Yeah, and, you know, I, I meet with uh, 
a lot of students, graduate students, undergraduate students at universities, uh, particularly when I'm talking about the role of science and technology for the sustainable development goals. And, and that's when uh, young people are very idealistic in many cases. And uh, they get very excited about this, trying to think, how can they use their expertise, you know, to, you know, advance this sort of agenda and like make the world uh, a better place. So there's a great interest by uh, not only young scientists, but from different engineering, from uh, social sciences, uh, humanities, and trying to think about, okay, how can I use my expertise also to uh, to advance these broad societal goals along the, the suite, sort of the one planet kind of uh, kind of ideas. The, so this, uh, I mentioned that fellowship program that the American Association of Advancement is science has for giving this two-year fellowship experience for a young scientist to experience what it's like working in the government or in the U.S. State Department, the foreign ministry. So a number of other countries are trying to create similar programs uh, like that. So I think there's a tremendous appetite for young people to essentially see if they can do two things at the same time, both be very good in depth in whatever field they've chosen to do, but at the same time spend some of their energies in trying to do these broader societal things. And so I think there are ways to do that. You can in my case, I sort of went from one side, I, I moved totally my career out of straight science into this uh, interface of science and policy. I think there are a number of very good scientists who stay deeply rooted in science, but they spend part of their time, like some of the mentors that I had working on issues like arms control with uh, Russian and Soviet scientists. Now there are a number of countries and their foreign ministries have created science advisors to their foreign ministers. So that sort of idea is, is catching on too. So I think they're there are a lot of opportunities for uh, scientists, whether they're deeply rooted as academics or in scientific research, but also to have uh, make contributions in this other area. And it's also, I think, a good place, as I mentioned, for this fellowship program. A number of the scientists have essentially switched their careers. They've either continued working in the U.S. government or they've gone into uh, non-governmental organizations in Washington and elsewhere that really focus on this science policy interface. It's so fascinating. I find it fascinating that at the end of the day, you just followed your heart, right. whatever your heart was. It's like I, I really was intrigued in science, but then I also wanted to impact the world. And um, I think that's the message that we definitely want to tell people out there is to, whatever you decide to do, follow your heart and, and it'll all work out at right. the end of the day. I really thank you for the conversation. I, and I, I know there's so many things you've done throughout your career that has impacted us as a, as a society. And I want to thank you for that as well. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Dr. Koglazer has brought science to the forefront of policies and made it a priority. I love his advice that you can bring together your passions to make this world a better place. Thank you, Bill, for all your work and the impact you're making on our planet. The Arena Lab podcast team includes me, Dan Dillard, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Special thanks to Robin Tim Weiss and the amazing team at Research and Innovation Network Austria. The Arena Lab podcast is available on Spotify, iTunes, and all other major podcast platforms. Maybe share this episode with a science fan in your life this week. We would appreciate it. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.